Swarm is the first licensed DeFi platform in the world. I spoke with their co-founder, Timo, and he told me why they chose to get regulated and to follow that path and why they chose specifically to do that in Germany. I had never heard of Germany being a regulatorily friendly country to the crypto industry, but he tells us why that is the case. You don't want to miss this conversation. That's dope. So Swarm is the the first licensed DeFi platform in the world. Yeah, as far as we are aware, it what is. What does that mean? Well, it means that basically everything that we've built has been built like any kind of decentralized app, um, as you would expect. It kind of looks and feels exactly like Uniswap or something else that you would engage with um, using a MetaMask wallet or you know any kind of like self custody kind of you know crypto application or hardware device. So I think. From that point of view, like, you know, it just looks and feels exactly like everything else that's out there. And I mean, to some degree, you know, you can argue that what it means to be regulated is that, of course, we're going to KYC everybody that goes on there. So that's like the visible piece for the users. So they basically, you know, as they try to use uh, the DEX or the OTC contract or the invest platform, which kind of has a liquid staking nodes, any of those things, as soon as they kind of enter there, the, it's, a, it's similar to like a centralized exchange uh, onboarding. If you go on there and you're like serious about doing something at like meaningful value level, then you're going to onboard and it's going to be the usual kind of KYC process. And so, so, that's, so it feels like a hybrid. Yeah, yeah. So it is. So that's like the visible piece. But it's like once you've onboarded, it, it's really just like, okay, it just looks and feels like DeFi. There's like nothing else that you would be able to say, okay, this is like wonky or doesn't work as expected. So like AMM pools, liquidity provision, swaps, um, you know, the, the DOTC contract is maybe a little bit different because it's just like, it's a way of avoiding slippage in a pool. So we just, it's just like a sitting order book where you right. take, take out positions, block trades, boom, boom. And then, but it's on a smart contract, so. Um, well, it's always nice not to see uh, the price go down 9% because of your order. Because there's not enough liquidity <laughs> depth, right? So, yeah. which That's like an advantage? Yeah, yeah. So for smaller asset categories, that happens, right? So yeah, all I think the time. there's so the OTC contract has that, like that has like a separate role. I remember the the early days of Uniswap. You'd go on there and be like, uh, if you do this two hundred dollar order, you will change the price by fifteen percent. Are you sure that That's you right. want to do that? And, right. and they didn't allow you unless like, you no, actually I had really to prove that in your that, settings, actually. right? So. If you've been following me for the last few months, then you definitely know that I've been trading and investing on BitGet. Now listen, it took me six months to decide that they were going to be the sponsor for the newsletter. But once I saw their partnership with Juventus, that they were the world's leading copy trading platform in crypto, and also that they're a top five exchange by volume, well, I was sold and I was convinced. And I've been using it ever since to dollar cost average and to invest in Bitcoin. You can also trade there with leverage, but of course, be careful if you're gonna do that. And I don't know if you saw the recent news, but they've also done a deal with Lionel Messi. Now you can get up to an $8,000 bonus using my link below and you can trade spot with absolutely no fees. You also get a 15% discount on trading leverage. Go ahead and sign up right now using the wolfofallstreets.info slash bitget. Claim that huge reward and use the world's best trading platform. So, so that's kind of what we built. And, and I think like there's a couple of ways to look at this. I mean, obviously behind the scenes, there's a bunch of stuff going on that's more like centralized functions in terms of like um, AML checks and, and like reporting to regulators and stuff like that. So those are the things that we have to do as a regulated entity just to kind of stay compliant with um, the, so it's a German regulator, Buffin, 
um, which incidentally, I mean, as far as I'm aware, it's like really the only regulator that said like, okay, here's how we look at, so we, we recognize crypto as something that's different from securities. So we don't have like the security token versus utility token conversation like, like, like here in the US. Um, oh, at you, all. Your regulators aren't children, that's nice. Well, <laughs> yeah, so they, yeah, I, I don't know where that came from, but it's like somehow they just decided that here's how, how we're going to deal with it. And, and it's like we recognize payment tokens, we recognize utility tokens, we recognize all these things as digital assets, and also um, we will classify them, however, as financial instruments. So by doing that, it basically means that if you're going to provide custody services or an exchange in Germany, to, to kind of trade or, or hold custody of digital assets, well, then you need to have the following licenses. So that's what we went for. Right. And it's just like, oh, okay, so let's do that. Because you're not actually custodying assets, though. Correct? Well, so we have- you just went the, the, that regulatory route because that was actually a more actually, strict framework probably than what you were doing, and so it- Yeah, and also we wanted to have more. the ability to actually hold custody because like from a user experience point of view, I mean, all, the, all us kind of geeks and early adopters, we, we, we don't care. I mean, it's like we can, use all the weird stuff. But in the end, like somebody's gonna want to see like a Robinhood type application of that course. just kind of deals with everything. And, and, and that requires us to have a custody license as well. So. well the, the hybrid makes a ton of sense because as much as sort of you just alluded to, the, the early ethos of crypto is to be your own bank. Yeah. But everyone who's their own bank generally loses all their money. People are very bad at being their own bank. That's true. At least in the mainstream. Oh, yeah, if, you're exactly. not, if you're not very hard down the rabbit hole. So you need to That's have right. sort of, I think, both options for people. I'm a big fan of self-custody, of course. Yep. But only for people who understand what they're doing. Yeah. And I think that's a question of maturity as well. Because like, in some sense, like there's an aha moment that happens if you kind of get self-custody and, and really kind of feel the benefits of it. So I think it's important that it's there as an option. Uh, but then again, like, like you said, I mean, it's like it's actually quite complicated and most people probably shouldn't be dealing with it. So why pursue the regulatory approval and go that route rather than just becoming another anonymous decentralized yeah, platform? Yeah, it was, there was two reasons really. I mean, one was like we were building a, um, first we built like an issuance platform for security tokens uh, when we were in California. So basically built that as an open source project. Like here's a transfer restricted uh, ERC-20 token. You can kind of make that an asset-backed token by saying this token represents a certain portion of a private equity fund or some other asset that you want to tokenize. So that was the first thing that we built. And then once we had built that, then it was pretty obvious that, okay, so why would you want to do that? Because you want to have liquidity. Uh, well, those are the two reasons. One, you want to raise capital for that asset for whatever reason, or you want to have liquidity for the token. And then so to build a secondary liquidity market in the US under the ATS, broker-dealer structure, transfer agent, all that stuff, we just concluded by talking to T0 and Open Finance and some of the other people that this is not like the place to build that. So sad. Yeah. So, so we just kind of, and also we had spent like in, in my case, like seven years in the Valley. Philip had been there, my co-founder for 10 years. And, and so we were like pretty kind of ready to move back to Europe anyway from a personal point of view. <laughs> So I think we're, we were like, well, it's, you know, it's a lot. I, I'm just giggling because I'm thinking about my friends who <coughs> sold houses there and had 30 offers before they were even on the market. They oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 40% no, over, and it just seems like a very different Yeah, yeah, place. yeah. So the Bay Area is very yeah. <laughs> particular from that point of view. So, so then, you know, we did the tour of Europe, like all the regulars, like Jersey, London, FCA, Gibraltar, Estonia, Liechtenstein, Switzerland. We went through the whole kind of thing. And then, and this was in... Um, uh, 2019, and then Germany just came out and said, we're going to change our legislation for the financial services um, 
kind of regulatory environment and here's what we're going to do. And then they uh, went out and said, we're going to deal with custody for digital assets. And then we're, and we kind of, our lawyer interpreted that as, well, if you do custody, you probably need to have a separate license for trading as well. So we applied for all of that stuff, which basically also meant that even though our, our initial idea was to actually deal with security tokens with like rev share things for various things being it like, you know, a boring asset like let's say real estate or something like, or a cap table or a private equity fund, or like a music license or a sports team uh, ticket rev share, whatever it is, right? They, obviously classifies as a security. That was our like original idea. But then also with the German kind of framework in place, it was like, oh shit, this applies for crypto and everything. So then we say, okay, let's just do everything. And then we said, okay, so the, the AMM pool, uh, the first thing we did was just like put a bunch of crypto in it to say, oh, yeah, you can just trade some, on a some liquidity. regulated yeah. counterparty, removes counterparty risk, and we have you know, no AML risk. There's KYC for every, anyone you're swapping with or trading with has been KYC on the other side, so there's not going to be any people that you're dealing with that aren't like allowed to be there, uh, including US people, by the way, because we couldn't allow US people on board because then they would be under SEC pur purview. So it's just like a bunch of stuff that we're just like, okay, this is pretty cool, let's just launch that. And then of course, like, I think it was pretty obvious that, okay, we probably need to do something a little bit more specific than that because that's not a, like enough of a, a reason for people to go there just because it's like, a regulated counterparty, you would also need to have products that were somewhat like distinguishing from whatever else was already out there. So then we started building uh, liquid staking products on a single chain. So first we launched on Ethereum, but then gas prices were like through the roof uh, last summer. I remember. <laughs> it was a hundred bucks. I'd like to swap a hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, that would yeah, cost me $700. <laughs> that's right. So and liquidity provision was even worse. Yeah. Like, so, so I think, um, so then we started porting to Polygon. And once we started the Polygon port, we just decided like, so what if we build the staking product so that all the assets sit on Polygon and then you just kind of buy into staked Sol, staked AVAX, staked you know, DOT, and then you can just rebalance and build your portfolio in any way you want. That's a really good way to do staking because then it becomes super accessible. Just use your MetaMask, boom, go in USDC to whatever staking network that you're buying into. And then once you've done that, then you kind of sit there and kind of think about like, you know, am I just, I'm just going to do this or do I want to do something else? And that's where the other, like the DeFi benefit comes in where, okay, so now I have this token that represents my staked SOL position, which by the way has gone through, in our case, into a block daemon managed validator uh, node, and then it sits in institutional custody as well. So it's basically like a protected asset at that point. And then you put that asset token into a, either a liquidity pool or you can use it as collateral. I was, yeah, I was just going to ask, are you staking so that you can be an LP and earn a yield, yeah, I mean, is exactly. that a fact? And yeah. So you're contributing to the liquidity pool, yeah. and that's why you're doing it. So it's not a one-way passive asset, it actually becomes an active asset at that point, so. Right, and you have, obviously, this background in securitizing things as non yeah, yeah, so basically I, as NFTs, I'm yeah, assuming. Yeah, well, yeah, so I have a TradFi background, right? So I think, and Philip also has a, um, a private equity background. So we, we just thought about this from a securities point of view from, from the, from the get-go, so we're, I think we were always like a little bit different from a lot of the like the um, the more extreme kind of DeFi projects out there that were just like doing everything to avoid regulation and, and centralization. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand the centralization piece. I mean, look, it's like, you know, there's a lot of problems with centralization in, in some ways and, and, and like the whole premise of building something that's like totally decentralized and accessible globally, I think is like a great idea. Um, and, and now it's just a matter of like figuring out, okay, so, there are a couple of things that need to be solved within that vision, 
which is like why we built, for example, the onboarding. I think the onboarding is like, what we do is we put an NFT into your wallet. If you say, I'm gonna use this wallet when I trade with you guys or any kind of like regulated DeFi infrastructure, then what happens is that you get an NFT that you can't move or, right. or transfer into your wallet. That proves your KYC. Basically proves your KYC. So our smart contracts are verifying that you have the NFT. As long as you have the NFT, you can do whatever, like on, on right? right? So I think that's like, and, and that's invisible. Once you've done it, you've done it, it's gone. So it's like, so I think from a user experience point of view, it's actually really straightforward. So, so it becomes almost like a philosophical problem more than anything else to have a centralized DeFi implementation because it becomes a question of like, yeah, but what about like sanctions and what about like, you know, the, the tornado cash situation if you were to, and the, the way we look at it is like, well, if you, if you put like crypto into, let's say Lido or, or like um, um, any other kind of decentralized platform that doesn't have the same kind of AML checks, that could potentially become a pretty big risk for you as a staker in, in that situation. And if you're an institutional staker, you probably wouldn't get it past compliance anyway, because like no chance. somebody would just say like, nah, we're not doing that. Yeah. So, and also there's no counterparty really to kind of to deal with. It's a vet. <laughs> well, it's a DAO, it's a yeah. DAO, so, right. and a smart contract. So, I, you know, I believe in trust the code and all that stuff, but it's like there's some aspects that just like maybe need to be built and then maybe we can kind of merge towards something that's a bit more like, you know, there's nothing wrong with desiring decentralization, but also being pragmatic and understanding that we live in a real world and it's not going to fly right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Exactly. I think everybody wants to get to decentralization, but they, it, it feels like people are so bipolar and they don't realize it's a sliding scale between the two. Right. And, and most things can't start decentralized. That's right. And I think, but the value is there, right? I think in, in decentralization and like providing like ubiquitous ac access to, to financial services, that, that's important, right? So I think like the, just the entry ticket for being able to build like fairly complicated financial products and get like decent returns for anyone, whether it's like 10 bucks, 100 bucks, or 1,000 bucks, or a million bucks, I think that's a great vision, right? So, and I think that's what blockchain does for the, like in, in, from a broader point of view. Uh, but then like right now, I think we're so early in this kind of market evolution, like all, I mean, the geeks understand the usability aspects of self-custody and most people don't. Right. So if you want to get to mass market, you kind of have to solve that. So it needs to look, look and feel like a, more like a normal finance app. And then like <clears throat> the other piece is that like, well, there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines because there's so much wonky stuff going on in DeFi in terms of hacks and other uncertainties that people have no, no way of like assessing the risk of, right? And the lack of regulatory clarity. Because you may exactly even assess the risk that. and realize that you're not going to get hacked and then be in fear of being uncompliant with a regulation that doesn't exist yet. Right. <laughs> and so, it's, yeah, it's, it's a double whammy, right? right. And, and so I think, I think that's why we see that this market is way more than we anticipated initially being like only security tokens. But now we're just looking at it as like more as a ubiquitous regulated infrastructure for any kind of transactions um, with digital assets being it like a wrapped Bitcoin or, or ETH or whatever, um, combined with like a tokenized stock or anything like that. We don't really care because we have now kind of the regulatory framework to do both. So we can kind of mix and match and build whatever kind of products that we feel make sense or the market feel, you know, has demand for. So. I've probably spoken with a thousand people in this space at some point between podcasts and, and interviews. And I don't think I've ever heard one tell me that German had a favorable regulatory regime for yeah. crypto. No, it's like, who would have thought, right? But I didn't, I, I literally never knew. Yeah. yeah. Bahamas, you know, yeah. Malta, Portugal has good taxes, but I've never heard 
that, right, that right. German, Germany was favorable. Is that because do you think they actually understand the space, or do you think just the way that they viewed it worked for what you were building? No, I, well, it's it's like the actual origin of that I, I can't really speak to, but like here's my thesis. Okay, so after Brexit, I think Germany kind of saw a chance to become like the go-to place for the financial services in industry Europe. in Europe. Sure. And so it's kind of obvious that if we do something really good from a kind of a futuristic point of view, that that will attract a lot of capital and, and like investment and so forth. So that's just uh, my kind of, um, you know, guess. But like what happened was actually really important because like it was so refreshing to come from the US in 2019 to Europe and like the whole kind of is it a security, it's not a security, like the whole kind of Huawei conversation was non-existent. And it was just like, here's what it is. And, and, and we've defined both, and, and if you're gonna transact or custody, here's how you do it, and here's what you need. And then we just kinda, okay, great, let's do it. Because really, coming from the US, we realized that, okay, this is really good. This is like super good. Yeah, it's 2022, and we're still doing that dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, also, I would say, I would argue, actually, we have probably less clarity now, and more controversy as to what it will Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it's actually less clear now, almost, with, with all the kind of the, the mixed messages and the- And the jockeying between agencies and- That's right. And sort of power that, tripping. And, and then, yeah, and then sometimes the, you know, come and talk to us, and then it's like super aggressive enforcement on the other <laughs> end. Come and talk to us so that we can threaten you with yeah. a lawsuit. Yeah, so fun. So I think that's problematic. But then the other piece was that Germany is like a, it's a really credible jurisdiction as well. So it's not like, you know, not to dunk on like, but I mean, I think Malta and Estonia it's not the and some of in Malta. Exactly. Right, of it's, course, right? it's Germany. It's not the Seychelles. It's, it's Germany in the middle of freaking EU, and which also means, you know, um, our vision is that whatever they do is probably going to be very likely going to be setting the tone for Europe in general, and the whole like Mika framework and whatever is going on across the European Union is going to be pretty much that. So we think that like by doing Germany really well, we basically cover Europe and then that's, that's There it, are people right? with a lot of fear about the Mika framework though. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean look- Although the worst parts did not pass as of yet, but the very fact that they've been discussed, I think, the, you know, until very recently, people had fear that Europe as a whole, not Germany specifically, would be more difficult to operate in than the United States. Yeah. Yeah, and there were some things in those drafts that were really bad, yeah. like really bad. Yeah. And, uh, and I think some of them like survived. Like I think there were some, if I remember correctly, like some really silly stuff about like enforcing KYC regardless of transaction size. I mean, come yeah. on. You so send $100 just, to your friend for dinner and you need to KYC your well, friend. The, and yeah. the vending machine use case, yeah. right? So like, yeah. okay, I spent five bucks in a vending machine. Come on, you're gonna what, scan the passport? You gotta KYC yeah, that, yeah. that machine. So it's like some of this stuff doesn't make sense. Right. For, for, because blockchain is actually a ubiquitous technology and it's easy to forget that. It's not, a, it's not a financial services infrastructure. It's not, it's a technology layer. It's like an internet, right? So it, that's where it gets a little bit weird. Um, but so yeah, I think um, there are some other things as well. This, the last draft with the white paper thing, that's really weird as well. It's like, and then, so specifically you have to provide a technical roadmap as part of your white paper. Yeah. Before, okay, come on. Nobody can do that. I mean. It just shows that they're it's like completely a business plan in ignorant. Like everybody, yeah. everybody kind of understands trying what to it fit, is. It's basically taking crypto and trying to fit it into a framework that they understand, even though there's effectively no way to do that. Yeah. I mean, you touched earlier on Tornado Cash. like You sort of mentioned it in passing, but to your point, it's just technology. Oh, yeah. It's agnostic. Yeah. Right? It's, it's like you know, banning cars because somebody wants it is. to put drugs it's, it's in their like trunk. It's like the cars, and the across. knives, and... Ban and my phone because you, you called, you know, not mine. 
be on someone's phone because they, you know, made a call about a crime that they were committing. So take away the phone. How is it any different than that to ban code or technology? No, but I think there's going to be some serious backpedaling even beyond what we've seen already. So, you know, the, the code thing is like a freedom of speech thing. So there's, there are like fundamental issues with that initial call that they made. So you guys are licensed and regulated. Uh, do you believe that the platforms that are not could effectively be regulated into oblivion? Uh, Certainly in some places. Yes, in some places for sure. They can just be shut down. So that's, that's obvious. Um, but I, th I, I still think that the, the market right now is like it's becoming a bit bifurcated in the sense that you almost have to choose like where you're going to operate or you're going like to do it or don't do it. And then, but I'm also thinking that a lot of the stuff that's kind of you know, maybe departing now in different directions is actually going to merge at some point. Yeah. Just from a kind of a, at least from a customer use case point of view. I agree, but so those customers won't be me because I live in the United States mm. and they think we're useless children who can't make decisions for ourselves, apparently. It's unbelievable. When, when will Americans be able to use your platform? Um, <laughs> well, we have some partner conversations with U.S.-based companies. But that's companies what you have to are, do. You have to partner with a yeah, U.S.-based yeah. company that already has the licensing. How damaging is it to your business to have to operate in specific jurisdictions and have to ignore some of the largest ones on the planet? It's really bad. Um, so you would think that like, okay, you have a big enough market, like 300 plus million people, whatever. But that's not like a lot of our clients that come to us, basically they're like, whether they are in the, you know, music licensing business or it's like in the sports industry, they want to do something that's like a, you know, a, let's call it a fan token with some economics in it built into it. Like, I don't know, rev share for ticket sales or something right. like that or merch or whatever. Um, those audiences don't confine themselves according to like the regulatory frameworks of whatever the regulators no. came up with, right? No. So those audiences are everywhere. So what happens is like, then you have, well, we need to be able to offer this. This actually happened already in a couple of cases where we have to cover like Europe and the US and then some parts of Asia from day one. And then it was like, okay, that's you complicated. You just can't. Yeah, well, then yeah. you're looking at like multiple filings and right, and, and then actually doing a one type of filing in the US and then that has like certain characteristics and lead times and things and then do another one in Europe and then you kind of build from there and it becomes really complicated, right? And, and that's where like the operation that we have now is like it's sufficient for what we're kind of what we set out to do but then now our clients are telling us that you need to have a broader scope, you need to be global, you need to be in the US and uh, yeah, no, it's problematic. You're talking about music licensing, what's the application there? Uh, rev share, you know, buy into your favorite artist, right? So, right. Royalties. Royalties. Yeah. Which is the worst process on the planet for anybody who's been part of it. I was in music for 20 years. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've joked about this on other podcasts. Like, you know, you would get a check for 87 cents for someone listening to your song yeah. 12 years ago. Yeah. It cost 10 bucks <laughs> to, to well, what is this? What, what is this check? <laughs> but, I mean, those are extremely practical use cases that should be available in every country, everywhere to oh, yeah. improve clunky and just ancient systems. Yeah. And, and also, like, once you have that piece in place, then you can build on it, right? So you can kind of expand from that and, you know, make it bigger than just, like, the, the music licensing itself. And so I think, and, and also, like, we're seeing, like, that, like, audience, audience bases are, like, the new market. I mean, that's the marketing channel today. So... Like we go from paid to audiences. So audiences is really where it's at. And I think and music is just showing the way for that. And, and because it's always been that way and sports as well. But now we're seeing more and more like products just being completely like 
originated from within audience owners, and that's kind of how the world is yeah. is working. I now. agree. Let's pretend that uh, you had regulatory approval any, everywhere, or that it wasn't even an issue. Yeah. What would you build? What would be the grand vision? Oh, it's just to build like the financialization of everything. Like, Tokenize everything. Yeah, pretty much. Because then, and, and it's like it can be just to create like a very streamlined and simple way of providing, oh, maybe I should sell like, you know, whatever percentage of this future stream of that. Or we just give the flexibility to be able to do whatever from a creative point of view and not being like completely restricted by regulatory and all the other stuff. Because so, so we look at like financialization of different industries as a big deal. It, is, it just becomes like, you know, that you can basically put an economic value to anything that has like where somebody like a user or a, a customer has a, an emotional connection to something, being it an artist or a product or a community, whatever it is, you can just like create some dynamics that are totally different than having, you know, Facebook being owned by a bunch of people and then, you know, all the economic value going to those owners as opposed to kind of revert, flipping that upside down, basically saying, no, the community is the value. Therefore, a lot of the economic value should go back to the community, which is, you know, as you know, kind of part of the crypto vision, right? Sure. And so, but doing that for things that are explicitly securities that actually include like revenue streams explicitly and being able to do that, that's what we want to do. Well, that makes perfect sense. And then obviously once you've assigned a value to it in that perfect world, I'm assuming then you can also take a loan against it. Trade it, take every, a loan every, against every it. Every single basically financial service that yeah. exists, you should be able to do with everything of value that you own. Yeah, yeah. So then instead of having these compartmentalized things, like sitting all with different kind of financial services providers, everything is on a horizontal layer instead. And then you can start cross using assets and, and money and loans and things um, across, right? So it just becomes much more flexible and and it's much more like user-centric at that point instead of like financial institution-centric. Do you think that we get there? I mean, do you think that one day my yeah. car, my car oh, yeah. is outside, yeah. I, uh, I send you hopefully not on MetaMask, but yeah, some but I mean, how often my, my car and you buy, you send me some USDC and we call it a day and now I own, you own the car? No, we, we're going there for sure, yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's inevitable because like it's, it's, it's a little bit like the, the stockbroker before you know, digital brokers came along and then it's like the travel industry before the internet came along and it's like, it's just... It's remember just, travel agents? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, when did you call a travel agent? <laughs> it's like, come on. But right? that, I mean, I, I, I got married almost 11 years ago and I used a travel agent for my honeymoon. <laughs> yeah, so, some, so sometimes, sometimes digitization and self-service becomes a little bit too, like, I guess, cumbersome for the end user. But at the same time, it's like, you know, it's inevitable. So these things are going in that direction. So I think we just, like, just need to iron it out. Sounds like there's going to be a lot of people who lose their jobs. <laughs> Yeah. Every middleman in every industry effectively needs to go find something uh, better to do soon. Yeah. Uh, but that is sort of the key and core ethos of crypto, right? Is eliminating third parties so that we Absolutely. can transact directly. Yeah, for sure, yeah. And it's the whole digitization as well. I mean, Web 2 had the same, Web 1 even had the same vision as well. So it's like basically like digitization removes a bunch of people in the middle. You can just access things directly. And, and so I think that trend is a mega trend, it just continues. Well, everybody's seen how effective it's been with Web2, obviously, yeah. the sort of decentralization, we won't call it decentralization, but direct exchange of information. I never thought I'd be able to just email you something, right, and, and you'd be able to get it, but it mm. gets very, uh, people get very emotional about it when it's their money. Mm -hmm. And I think Web3 being the, you know, sort of the ability to transact that value in that same yeah. manner is really exciting, but also really scary. 
And we've seen the reasons that it's really scary with hacks, exploits, yeah. failures. Yeah. So how do we avoid all of that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, and that's right now that's one of the bigger challenges. And, and the way that we approach some of that is by basically having these like, so, I mean, all our assets are wrapped. So, you know, so part of the, part of the benefit and the problem with crypto is that it's bare instruments. You just like if the it's value. gone, it's gone. If it's gone, it's gone. <laughs> and it's, you know, the, which is the value is in there, right? So I think that's one of the things where, you know, we basically said, okay, in order to stay regulatory compliant, we're going to wrap these assets and then put them into a contract so that, like, so basically they allow movement between whoever has been um, approved to uh, you know, acquire or receive something on the network um, as, as per kind of our and our partner's definition, right? So, so that's like one layer of protection because then it's not like this free-flying um, better instrument that can just you can just hack and then move into you know a curve pool and then all of a sudden it's like oh okay. Do you um, get to a world where it doesn't matter what chain you're on, you can use your platform regardless? Yeah, I think we're so now we're Ethereum Polygon. I think like with the certainly with the EVM compatible chain, we're just going to continue like the way it makes sense. I think it's really hard to read like where this is going right now. Yeah, it's hard Even, to pick you a know, winner. Yeah. yeah, it is. Uh, I think Ethereum's going nowhere. Okay. I, I think. Okay. I, I think Ethereum is good. Like we've got the network effect. I it's think, there to it's stay. This, yeah, I think Ethereum's here forever. Yes, true. The rest, I hope so, but... Uh, yeah, but also with like now we're on Ethereum and Polygon, I think like even that dynamic in itself was kind of a result of there's something being like a deficiency on Ethereum that we fixed by going to, to Polygon, right? And I think like... You know, there's some interesting stuff happening with Nier and, and with AVAX and some of the other ones. So, so I think there's like, yeah, I mean, we don't really care that much. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Because they're all proof of they stake. <laughs> they're all proof of stake. So like all those arguments around like the pros and cons of proof of stake and the whole kind of, you know, Bitcoin maxi conversation with like, you know, Ethereum being this or that or, or not being decentralized anymore or uh, whatever happened after the, up, the merge. I think, well, let's just have it play out, right? I mean, we're kind of application layer. We're not layer one developers, so. Yeah, I don't see any reason that it would benefit you to get involved in arguments between tribes and maximalists. No. Just let them, uh, right. let them do their Lord of the Flies thing and see who uh, comes out as the uh, winner yeah, at yeah. the end. The Bitcoin maximalist argument about decentralization kind of makes me laugh. I'm a Bitcoiner, I think, at heart, but yep. that's like pretending that major mining pools don't control the bulk of Bitcoin hash rate. I don't really yeah. see the difference. Yeah. No, no. I, I saw that, like the Lido Coinbase argument about 40 plus Which is valid. No, which is, which is valid. very valid that 60% of the staking is seven entities yeah. or something like that. That's right. Yeah. Which, yeah. But, but I, mean, I think that will change. It, yeah, for, for sure. As and people like, start to stake more into the contract. I think there's a lot of people who have been waiting for the merge to yeah. stake their assets. I mean, we're like one week in. That's nothing. Yeah. Right? It's, it's nothing. Yeah. It's a new paradigm. It's actually, it was actually a huge change. With, I, with like, I would argue it's the biggest fundamental yeah. moment we've had in this space. Yeah. Beyond, beyond the creation of Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then, yes, yeah, so I think the, the mining pools, like the, the, the consolidation or concentration, whatever you want to call it, on the... On the Bitcoin side, it's like there's like a counter argument there, but but then again, I think what was fascinating was like with the China ban. I think just the migration of the Bitcoin hash power that was so cool to watch as well. It just like took care of itself. Yeah, absolutely beautiful, incredible. right? Yeah. So, if, if that had been a uh, regulated market in the United States, we would have had the Fed coming in and bailing people out and, and yeah. figuring it out. And it's my favorite argument for Bitcoin. Mm, we lost fifty percent of the hash rate overnight, yeah. and now we're at all time high yeah. of difficulty. Yeah. 
No, that was very right. cool. Uh, yeah, absolutely an incredible illustration of why this stuff is so impactful. Yeah. Well, I, I look forward to seeing what you guys continue to build in the future, and hopefully the uh, regulation gets in line and is not too damaging. I hope so, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Scott.